Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Our healthcare system in every province and territory in Canada has been strained over the past year with the pandemic. And now health coalitions from seven different provinces are calling on the federal government for more health care support. And they're saying that gradual decline in how much the federal government put into provincial health care has been especially damaging. So essentially, any kind of little fracture or fault line that we had over the last 20 years is becoming much more widely exposed because of the pandemic. So joining us now to talk more about this is Usman Mushtaq, who's a coordinator for the BC Health Coalition. Usman, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So what is the message then to the federal government here? Yeah, so the message to the federal government is we really need federal vision and and leadership. And we need it at the national level because largely what the provinces uh, in the last few years since the the failed negotiations of the health accords in 2016-2017, the provinces have been left to their own. And so what we've we've been seeing and what COVID has really... um, you know, shown a spotlight on is a fragmented universal public health care system where, you know, instead of every Canadian across this country being assured the same level of health care, where we're seeing different, um, you know, different, different levels of health care. And, and we see this, unfortunately, in the in the long term care sector, you know, some really sad and tragic stories there where, um you know, seniors are, are and their families are, are suffering uh, losses and, and um, seeing the impacts of, of, our uni- right. of our universal system being fragmented. Is this something that you think, Isman, started, you know, back in the 1990s? There's been all this discussion about, you know, the cuts to health care transfers back in the 90s. Did it start back then? Absolutely. When the... When the um, health transfers first started, they were, you know, the federal government was transferring 50% of the province's healthcare budgets, and now they're down to 22%. And so, you know, over the last really, you know, decades, we've seen the the health transfers decreasing, and that's impacted um, our healthcare system at the provincial level, because we're not only are we underfunding our public healthcare system, but um, it's also allowed private for-profit interests to come in. Um, and again, you know, the going back to the long-term care homes, we've seen private for-profit long-term care homes suffering um, more so than our universe, than our public health care homes. So um, really it's like by, by underfunding our system, mm-hmm. we're letting private um, corporations come in. So I, I wonder then as well, like when you talk about seven provinces are getting together for this message, is there disparity between the provinces too? Because I would imagine some provinces might, you know, fill the gap more so than other provinces. Absolutely, yeah. There is disparity in, in how the provinces are <clears throat> are funding the their systems. And, and that's why we need federal vision and leadership because 
we need national standards. Um, in the Prime Minister's supplemental mandate um, letter to the Health Minister, um, last, which was released last week, um, he calls for national standards in, in long-term care, which is, you know, the health coalitions and many other advocates and, and seniors have been calling for. Um, but we can't have national standards without without federal, um, you know, standards around around funding. And so, um, you know, if we if the government passes something like national standards for long-term care, um, you know, it, without funding support, uh, every province will be left to their own to figure out how do we mm-hmm. how do we fund these. This is something that I think premiers have talked about, right, with the federal government, but is it, is it not going anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... I think the premiers have talked about it, but but it's not something that the federal government has done um, with every province and bringing everyone to the table together at the same time. So, um, you know, we we really need uh, we really need the federal government to show leadership in this and, and bring everyone to the table at the same time, and and not to play politics around it. So, you know, one of the one of the one of the uh, things we're calling for, in addition to federal um, funding and increase the health transfers is accountability mechanisms and transparency in how that funding is being used. Um, currently, even the little um, of the health transfers that is being sent to the provinces, um, there's no transparency or accountability in how the provinces are using that funding. Um, sometimes that funding goes into um, private, you know, for-profit corporations because they're coming into the health health sector and and public contracts are being given to them. Right, so still a lot of work to do. Uh, Usman, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Sonia. Appreciate Isman Mushtaq, who's a coordinator for the BC Health Coalition. They're one of a whole bunch of coalitions from seven different provinces that are calling on the federal government for more health care support. Now, this whole situation, as we said, goes back, you know, 20 plus years to the 1990s. Remember when Paul Martin was finance minister, liberal government, you know, balanced budgets, got the, you know, the finances under control, but they largely did that by cutting transfers to the provinces. A lot of that coming at the cost of healthcare spending. Most provinces stepped in, right? Filled that gap, but it is becoming more and more challenging, especially with the pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. So earlier when we were talking to Gord, we were discussing how yesterday at the press conference, there was clearly a heightened level of concern coming from public health officials. And so why is that? Well, that can be summed up in one word variants. Whether it's the UK, South Africa, or now the Brazilian variant, there is huge concern about these fast-spreading versions of COVID-19, especially since we can't vaccinate fast enough. So everything is on the table now. Uh, longer you know, term regulations, more travel restrictions, you name it. Well, Ray Watt Dionadan is an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa, and he's explained what it is about these new variants that is so concerning. So we talk about variants, first of all. They're just different versions of the COVID virus, and uh, mutations happen all the time. Mutations happen in ourselves as we speak. It's just that rarely a mutation arises that is beneficial to the thing that is mutating. So in this case, uh, a mutation has arisen in the virus that makes it better in the sense that it's more attuned to its environment. So the UK variant, B117 we call it, appears to spread more easily, and that's probably because 
it binds to the cell surfaces a bit more easily and infects you more easily. And the South African variant has a, a similar characteristic. Um, it, additionally, it may be able to elude our immune system a bit more easily as well. All of these mutations are occurring on what's called the spike protein, which is a big protein on the surface of the COVID uh, virus. And that protein is what the vaccines and our immune system use to identify it. So it's pretty important that we're able to continue to identify that protein. Luckily, it's a large protein and the mutations are relatively small. So apparently the vaccines can still identify them. Now, our concern, other than the fact that the vaccines might not have been able to target the, uh, the virus, is that if these strains become dominant, then we're in a new level of crisis. Because right now we struggle to contain the current uh, dominant variant of COVID. We can't keep it out of our long-term care centers. We struggle to prevent the transmission from happening. If the UK strain becomes more dominant, it's 56% more transmissible. That makes it even harder to keep out of our sensitive areas. And the stakes get higher. So I think the stakes have gotten higher because those strains are now, uh, or those variants rather, are now present in Canada, and they will become dominant eventually unless we can get ahead of them by curtailing transmission and vaccinating even faster. That's a very big unless, right? That is Raywat Dianadan, an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. This is something that Dr. Bonnie Henry also addressed in her press conference yesterday. There are now a number of variants circulating worldwide that are proving to transmit more easily um, than the ones we've seen in the past. In particular, we're concerned about one um, that has been labeled the UK variant, um, but it is uh, technically known as B117. Um, and we have had five cases of the B117 uh, variant detected here in British Columbia. All of them are either related to travel or um, related uh, to uh, close contact with a traveler, including uh, the three initial cases. So far, we have had no ongoing transmission from any of the uh, five identified variant, uh, UK uh, cases. In addition, we've also had three cases arise through our surveillance of the B1351 variant. And this is the one that has been linked with increased transmissibility in South Africa. All three of these cases were community acquired. So they were not linked to travel, which is of course something we are concerned about. They weren't linked to each other. And we're now investigating. Uh, two were in Vancouver Coastal, one in the Fraser Health region. And public health is, is doing um, backward contact tracing, trying to determine where they may have acquired their infections. It's Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. Now, we are going to speak with one of the authors of a paper that examines what might happen if one of these more aggressive variants takes off. That is coming up a little bit later on the show this morning. But if you're wondering, like, why the change in tone from public health officials? Because you're thinking, well, the numbers have been going down, down, down. Yes, they have. However, they're not going down enough. And in fact, they have plateaued. So we haven't so much flattened the curve as we have just plateaued. We're not continuing to um, you know, bring that number down. It's kind of staying between 350 and 500. And essentially, they're concerned that if we just continue doing what we're doing, 
thinking that we're having success. And then these new variants show up in the population. Well, then that's it. Numbers are going to take off again. And at the same, I think they thought, okay, well, we're going to vaccinate. And it was a race against time to vaccinate. And we know what the problems are there, right? Interesting. I had a couple of people email me and asking, why are we the only ones having trouble getting the vaccine? We are not, not by a long shot, actually. Take a look at some international news. The European Union is in a battle with Pfizer over the shortage of doses as well. As I mentioned earlier, Sweden is stopping payment to one of the big pharmaceutical companies because they said, we're not, we're not sure what's going on here, like how you're charging us and we're not getting the doses that we had contracted for. So there's a lot of pressure right now on all sorts of countries around the world because they were all kind of facing this shorted situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Vancouver in the news for all the wrong reasons today. Internationally, pick up a paper, the New York Post, the Washington Post, the Daily Mail, you name it. And there is a story about two Vancouver residents who chartered a flight to this very small community in the Yukon, all so they could jump the queue and get the COVID-19 vaccine. The man was a former CEO, we say former because he resigned his job on Sunday, uh, of Great Canadian Gaming. The woman is his wife. Now, this story broke thanks to the Yukon News. And Haley Ritchie is our political reporter there and joins us now to talk more about this. Haley, thanks for joining us. Hi, good morning, Simi. Now, you, Yukon News, are the, you're the organization that kind of named this couple yesterday. Can you tell us what led to that decision? Sure. I mean, we did have a conversation about it in our newsroom in the morning because we don't, um, you know, we don't always name people in situations like these. We've had a couple of cases where people maybe broke the rules unintentionally. Um, and at least if they paid the fine and it didn't go all the way to court, um, we've sort of made decisions on a case by case basis not to name them. Um, in this case, everything we know is that this couple um, kind of knew what they were doing and, and broke the rules quite deliberately. And um, a lot of people feel that they put this small community, Beaver Creek, at risk. Sounds like there was a lot of anger. There was. There was a lot of speculation over the weekend. Um, CBC broke the story on Friday that this couple had come up, and a lot of people were wondering, you know, maybe it was an elderly couple who felt maybe desperate. They had no other options. We weren't really sure. A lot of that sort of um, sympathy has disappeared, I think, <laughs> uh, since since Monday, and certainly the First Nation um, feels very upset that they were taken advantage of and and put at risk their health. The couple, you know, we don't know if they had... uh, Right now, our chief medical officer of health has said very low risk. But of course, coming up here, you wouldn't know if you had COVID-19 or not, really. Yeah, let's talk about that because that is, I'm sure, a very tight-knit community up there. Uh, And the fact that people would do this, that would fly up from the big city and try to jump the queue... What are you hearing from people, Haley? Oh, um, there's certainly, it's certainly, yeah, very emotional. I think people are very, uh, feeling very frustrated. You know, at one point we did have a, a bubble, of course, with British Columbia. That ended in November with the, the divorce. Um, but, you know, there's so much travel and connection between the two communities. I think people are just, yeah, very, very disappointed. It speaks of a real sense of privilege that, queue jumping, that um, tourism, vaccine, vaccine tourism is what I've seen it called. Um, Yeah, people are very upset about it. The First Nation is calling for more than fines. I think people are quite upset that the punishment on the table right now 
is um, a little more than a thousand dollar fine um, for each of the bakers, and um, people are just saying that's not enough for the the risk they brought to the community. I can see that too. So, can what did you find out about how this unfolded? How was it discovered that they were not from up there? Yeah, that's an interesting story because a lot of people have said this is a community of about a hundred people. How could two strangers sneak in? Yeah. Um, but Beaver Creek is also, it's a border town. It's a transit community. People come up, maybe work there um, a year, a few months, and then leave. So you don't necessarily know everybody, although it is a tight-knit community. Um, so what we've heard so far was that they came to the clinic and told people that they were working at, a well, the local motel. Um, and um, when they really gave themselves away is when they asked for a ride back to the airport, um, which the clinical team thought that's very odd why would you need a ride to the airport if you live in beaver creek um so after that sounds like they kind of gave themselves away on that one though right like that's that would be an immediate red flag you would think that was a tell right and you know probably a bit of a walk to the airport but still um that was a red flag so that tip got sent to our SEMA enforcement team and they managed to track them down at the airport before they left to return to Vancouver. And so what has enforcement been like up there then? Like, is there a lot of enforcement in terms of people making sure they're self-isolating, making sure they're quarantining? Um, there has been. Yeah, it is quite strict. Um, we see uh, usually one or two charges late a week. Um, of course, we're on the way to Alaska too. So there are a lot of different rules around um Every time people arrive, they have to sign a declaration. It's a legal promise that they will self-isolate, quarantine for two weeks. Um, I had to do that myself when I arrived in the community. And, of course, everyone who came back for Christmas um, after visiting family or other holidays uh, also had to self-isolate for two weeks. Um, so it it has been, um, yeah, strict. The expectations right. are you come to the community and you're, you're going to lay low um, in your home or, or another spot where you can safely isolate for two weeks. Have you seen the way this story has like taken off all over the world? I have. I was not uh, quite expecting that. Yeah, I guess it's just it's hit a nerve, right? The uh, vaccine is a sensitive topic and, and everybody else has to wait their turn. There's been a lot of pulling together in COVID-19. And I think it's also um, just highlighted the places where some people don't. Some people are are acting selfishly. Will it change the way things are done up there, do you think, Haley? Like, I know they weren't, you didn't have to prove residency, right? Because as you said, it's a bit of a transient community. Is there word that any of that is going to change? There is. That's definitely uh, a follow-up story over the next couple days. The government is looking into how can we include people who work up here but don't necessarily reside here because it's in the community's best interest to have as many people vaccinated as possible. But we don't want people traveling up and skirting the rules to skip ahead the vaccine line. Um, So what I've heard is that um, clinics will be getting copies of different health cards to make sure there's no sort of fraudulent activity happening in that way. Um, and also they're, they're looking into other safe measures. Maybe you need someone else to vouch for you. Maybe you need a little more proof. Um, the government hasn't announced that yet, but they have said that they're looking into it. They want to avoid this kind of situation in the future. Oh, no kidding. Haley, thank you so much for talking to us. 
Thank you. Have a good morning. You too. That's Haley Ritchie, the politics reporter with Yukon News. Yukon News broke this story naming the couple who came up to their community and chartered a plane to a tiny community called Beaver Creek and then managed to get themselves the COVID-19 vaccine, gave themselves away, as Haley mentioned there, by then asking for a ride to the airport. And immediately the people at that clinic were like, well, wait a minute, why do you need a ride to the airport if you live here? So they phoned over to the motel where these people said they worked. Motel said, no, we have not hired any new people. And the story unraveled from there. I don't think this is quite the end of it because of the discussions, as Haley mentioned too, about cracking down on now who gets the shot and also just cracking down on people who do something like this. What kind of punishment is even adequate to send a message to other people who were thinking they can skirt the line or the system somehow? This is Mornings with Simi. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday asked us to do more, do more than we have done before to really bring COVID-19 under control. Now that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because many people thought, well, I'm already doing as much as I possibly can lead to the discussion of the people who aren't right. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But why is she saying that? Why is she asking us to do that? Well, it's because the COVID-19 variants in this province are becoming more and more of a serious concern. We've got the UK variant, the South African one, and now a Brazilian one too. So what would happen then? Like what their concern is, what would happen if a high transmission variant like one of these just took off in the population? Well, SFU professor Carolyn Colane is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics, Evolution and Public Health. She's co-written a piece on exactly that scenario. And she joins us now to talk about it this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. These are some scary numbers that we're dealing with. Tell me, what did you take a look at? We just looked at what happens if we keep doing what we're doing now across Canada. So this, these are model projections. They're not forecasts or predictions of what we will do. They're just imagined, you know, if we keep doing exactly what we're doing now, but we get a variant that is 40% on average more transmissible, could be a little more, could be a little less. And it establishes sometime in January, just what does that higher transmission rate actually look like? So how long does it take to really take off? Does it take off? Are we doing enough to stop a variant that's really higher transmission than the one we have now? Uh, And then how does it grow? Okay. And what did you find? So basically, I think what we found and what the the other models have, have found this too, there's one from the CDC in the U.S., that basically failure to contain this now spells disaster later in about March or, you know, it could be a couple weeks earlier, a few weeks later, depending on when, um, when it actually establishes. But we have a tremendous benefit if we could stop introductions of high transmission variants, at least and we probably can't stop them forever, forever. But if we could stop them for a few months and if we could really contain those uh, tiny clusters before they really get established and take off um, and start kind of transmitting in the community in B.C., Okay, and what do you see happening right now then, Carolyn? Do you see them make, are we making an effort to do that? Like, so far, have we done an okay job? Well, we're doing great with COVID. Um, I think we're, you know, as as you can tell from the the people who got really angry at the suggestion yesterday, um, this is a hard thing to do, and it's it's damaging a lot of people and a lot of things. So 
uh, you know, we are doing well with COVID. We're kind of keeping it balanced right on the R is one threshold, you know, if you think that way. And that means if something more transmissible came where we wouldn't be doing enough to contain it with what we're doing right now. So, you know, I think it is really important to contain it. On the other hand, you know, without again, I'm seeing what what we saw at first with COVID. We see an introduction here, an introduction there, a lot of introductions here and there, and then it takes off. And I really hope we can avoid that with the new variants. So when you say it takes off, what are we doing or what could we be doing that would allow that to happen? Well, I just think that, um, okay, so some things we're not doing. We're not enforcing limitations on travel. So we're not defining non-essential travel and we're not enforcing isolation of travelers. We're not thinking about quarantine or isolation of domestic travelers. So we have very porous borders, I think, in Canada and and in B.C. Um, We are not using rapid testing to stop outbreaks and stop transmission. So rapid widespread screening. So we still have a a landscape where asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people can spread COVID. And, you know, what we're doing is mostly worked. It's been great, you know, for COVID in terms of the, the testing we've done, but it may not be enough for a high transmission variant. So we may need to do more. And then I guess, lastly, we still have some contact, even though what we're doing is, you know, people are doing so, so much and people have lost so, so much. We are still, you know, there's a lot of workplaces and and social contact that that is still happening. And that gives a new COVID, a high transmission variant, an opportunity to spread around. Okay, so what does the more look like that we would have to do? So I don't know what Dr. Henry meant by more. I would imagine she meant people who who may not be following the guidelines should follow them um, because there were no new guidelines that were outlined that, that defined any more that that the rest of us are, you know, that those who are strictly following the guidelines could be doing. I do think that the idea that, that you just never socialize with anyone outside your immediate household ever will be hard to do for a lot of people for good reasons. There are some people who, you know, maybe they, they and their sibling both care for an elderly parent. Maybe, you know, their children move from household to household, you know, to go stay with their other parent. There are basically situations where, we can't completely lay the burden on individual social lives. So, you know, so there may, there may be a plea there to do more of that with a recognition that maybe people aren't right. completely doing that. What so a, I'm, I'm not sure. What about the role of vaccine then in all of this? Does that help the situation? I think it could help the situation. I think for vaccine to help, what we would need to be doing is is probably vaccinating essential workers and vaccinating those people who do have to have in-person contact, especially, you know, frontline workers who aren't given PPE, um, everybody out in the workplace. And and we would also have to have the vaccine really have one of its strengths be in preventing transmission. And I think we do think it will do that. That's why they're vaccinating healthcare workers, for example, uh, hoping to prevent introductions into long-term care homes. Um, but, you know, I think they're, they're kind of going with a risk-based oldest first strategy for now. I think if we really started to, to say, okay, we want to stop transmission as fast as possible, we would try to, to ensure that vaccination can do that. And we would also roll out all the tools in the toolkit that we have, not just our favorite ones. Right. So, so we would roll out more rapid, rapid testing and very widespread screening. Okay. You're talking about ramping up right on a huge level where I think everybody, a lot of people are starting to think, oh, we've got the vaccine coming so we can scale things down. But you're saying the complete opposite. Well, I hope that we can, you know, we need to get out of, uh, out of what was supposed to be a two-week 
set of measures. I, re- oh, I remember right. them saying, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is for the next two weeks, <laughs> do this. And I thought, yeah, it's not going to sure. do anything. In two weeks, we're going to be back to where we are today, right? So, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, they have to have a stay-at-home order in BC like they have in Ontario. I really hope we don't do that. We've never done that. We've never had to do it. If we want to protect ourselves against a high transmission variant, we could be thinking about much wider screening and u- use of rapid tests and use of vaccination to to prevent transmission, it's much better if we don't have to do that because we can hold off introduction of high transmission variants and make sure that any that we do have in communities here today are really, really tamped out. So that would, but that would suggest a localized measure. If there's a new variant in one community somewhere in BC that is spreading in the community, that would suggest, you know, rapid test of everyone in that community today and, and get that, you know, right. stop that. Rather than say the whole population, you know, stay at home. But I don't see, in my opinion, a lot of what you're talking about, I don't kind of see that happening yet. Right. I don't either. Um, I think that the conversation should happen. I think this may, new, new, higher transmission variants in the context we have now where we have already done so much may mean that public health needs to be willing to take some actions that they didn't take last time. At the end of the summer, Mm -hmm. we didn't shut our local borders and establish a Pacific bubble the way the Atlantic bubble had been done. We didn't say, okay, we're going to do really localized interventions in a, you know, let's say we have a a dangerous situation in a town. We're going to screen everyone in that town and stop travel to and from that town and really get it under control in that town locally. We didn't roll out rapid tests. Home tests weren't approved yet in the summer. We could have said, okay, we want, we want to do a Pacific bubble. We didn't do that. If we want to contain the high transmission variants, we may need to be willing to think about some, doing some of these things that we didn't take up last time. Mm-hmm. Because I think in the summer, people felt a little bit optimistic, you know, west of the Rockies, north of the border. This doesn't happen here. Look how well we've done. We've hardly had any COVID. And, you know, that was never true. Um, but I think now maybe we know better that it isn't true. And we're not, we're not magic unicorns here where, where pre-symptomatic <laughs> don't spread or, or asymptomatic don't spread COVID or no one's going to introduce it in, into long-term care homes. You know, now we, we've had our own tragedies and maybe we'll be willing to learn from that and take some actions to control these variants, even if we didn't take them before. I think just asking the population to do more, you know, I can hear the plea from Dr. Henry because vaccination isn't going to stop transmission yet. Um, We haven't vaccinated people who are transmitting or who are at risk of exposure and at risk of transmitting yet. We hope we can do that, but we're not going to do that in the next two weeks or six weeks. We are not. Carolyn, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Carolyn Colain, who's the SFU professor in Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection Evolution and Public Health, talking about this co-written paper that she just has done about the variants and how if they get a hold here in the next couple of weeks, we are in big trouble. Hence the change in tone and message from public health officials. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here's a question for you. What would you do if you couldn't just Google it? You know, Google is so pervasive that the name of the company has been turned into a verb. But along with that success comes increased scrutiny. And that's happening all over the world in recent years because of their global presence and what a huge stamp that is. Now the company is threatening to pull their services from Australia because lawmakers are pressuring them to be more accountable. 
So what does that mean for us here in Canada, where Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault is threatening or trying to do the same kind of similar thing? Joining us for more on that is News Media Canada CEO John Hines. John, thank you very much for being here. Thanks. Looking forward. Very happy to be here. So let's talk about these new regulations in Canada. Is this something that you think media companies in Canada would like to see happen? Yes, very much so. Media companies in Canada have been pushing the federal government to enact uh, legislation to uh, to ensure that uh, the digital platforms pay for content for a long time, and uh, it looks like the government is moving forward on that. Okay, and what what do you think that would look like, or what should it look like? Well, it actually shouldn't look any different from a consumer perspective. I don't think it makes it shouldn't look any different. Really, this is a this is should be an agreement between the platforms and the the, the publishers or the providers to con- that whereby the platforms compensate the providers for use of their content. So there's no taxes, there's no government involvement. It's it's really a negotiation between two two parties. Right. And that's what's going on in Australia, right? So I guess for people to understand is like when you go to the Google homepage and there's all these news stories on there, Google is benefiting from that. But the companies that provided that content are not. Absolutely. What happens is, you know, a lot of a lot of search is for news. And so, you know, Google has made a business of using other people's content to uh, to drive their business model. And, And publishers around the world are saying, um, gee, that, that's not a very fair business, uh, business model and that we would like to be compensated for, for the use of that. I think the analogy that, that we use, it's, it's a bit like commercial radio where, um, you know, radio stations play songs and sell ads around that, but they wouldn't think of not compensating the, the, the performers or the, the labels for the use of their content. Right. It seems to me, though, John, this is a discussion and a battle that's been happening for years, though. Uh, How do we know that Google's even going to do anything about this? Well, you know, it's interesting. It has been happening for years, and I think it shows you just how powerful these these platforms are. Um, What you know, we've, we've seen in France recently, the EU uh, enacted some legislation and the French have been the first to put it forward. So they actually have reached an agreement in, in France with the publishers to pay for that content. So it is moving forward. It is happening. Uh, France is happening. Australia, there's legislation right now in their House of Commons and, and we expect that to pass uh, in the next few, well, the next few weeks. So, um, you know, it has been a long time coming, but, um, you know, I think governments around the world are waking up to this, and uh, you know we've seen it. You've seen a lot in the U- U.S. as well around the antitrust stuff. So people are waking up, and and I think it's going to happen. Yeah, but are the tech companies waking up though and realizing well, that? Well, yes, they're. Yeah, that's the big question. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, they they did wake up, and I think what what uh, you know the industry has seen is only when governments, um, you know, there's been a lot of voluntary discussions between the platforms and publishers and other groups over the past few years. But it's only really when governments wake up and um, enact legislation and are committed to that legislation that anything really happens. That's certainly what's happened happening in the EU, and 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 again, what's happened in Australia. And um, you know, we've seen that. Uh, Google and Facebook and others have responded very, very aggressively in Australia. They threatened to withdraw search. Um, they threatened Facebook as we to, to to push news off the platform. So you know these are big companies with obvious big real power. But um, you know it is moving forward. 
I guess the environment in the United States helps here too, right? That if they are going to be forced to some kind of regulation or answer questions in the United States, does that kind of give a boost to countries like Canada and Australia? I I certainly think it does, right? I mean, there's no question that the United States is the big player in this. The EU is another big player. And um, now that we've seen, you know, there's there's, uh, a number of lawsuits, both at a state level, a federal level, individual level, antitrust stuff in the U.S., uh, it's certainly bringing it to the fore there. And uh, it looks like there's the political will in the U.S. To, to move on this file. Has Canada been behind the times on this? You cited the EU, like other countries have been yeah. thinking about this for a while. <laughs> yeah, I think we're behind the times on it. Um, you know, we, other countries, the EU has had a number of things, whether it's a, a number of investigations through the antitrust side, um, and they did pass the, the directive a couple of years ago. So, you know, I think Canada um, has been behind. I think if they if the government moves forward on this, um, we'll be we'll be back in the middle of the pack. So I think that's a good place to be. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see what happens. John, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Nice talking to you. You too. That's John Hines, the CEO of News Media Canada. That's a lobby group that represents media companies in this country. And of course, there's a lot of that going on right now. A lot of discussion behind the scenes as the federal government is kind of getting ready to bring in some form of regulation against social media and tech companies. We spoke to Heritage Minister Stephen Gibo about that last week, and we'll keep you posted on how it goes. Uh, taking a look at what's going on with the federal government, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is speaking this this morning, and he is saying that the government isn't going to hesitate to take tougher measures on travel if those measures are needed. In fact, he is promising new measures very soon on travel during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Could that be restrictions on domestic travel, more restrictions on international travel? There is more to come on that, so stay tuned.